Well, good morning. Morning, church. Uh, I just want to say uh, I really appreciate all those that were able to make it out to the volunteer banquet last night. And I just want to recognize Amy one more time for all the hard work that she put in. It was fantastic. Um, we, we have an incredible team, our leadership team, uh, the men and their wives. They do an excellent job here. And there's so many talent, talents and skills that we have in our church. I really just appreciate all the help and all the, uh, the vision and hard work that they put in to make this ministry a success, and for all of our uh, V-Life team members that, uh, that are working even now in our kids' ministry and other areas to make uh, this happen week after week, we, I just, as your pastor, just am honored and thankful to, uh, to serve the Lord with you and be about the kingdom's work and the kingdom business. Um, amen. Uh, last week, again, we're still in Psalms. We uh, started Psalms chapter 51, so if you have your Bible, you can flip there. The verses will also be on the screen. This week, we're going to kind of, we're going to base off of Psalm 51, but we're going to take a journey really through the Old and New Testament to kind of solidify this, this subject we started last week. Last week, we, we looked at Psalm 51 and how it applied to our personal relationships, when we saw last week as we were studying that God is actually more interested in us reconciling our relationships than actually gathering here on Sunday and singing his praise, than offering his, him worship. That, that, that's how important reconciling relationships are to God, that God would rather us live out our faith than just make a good show when we come to church. The cornerstone of that reconciliation in our relationships is repentance and forgiveness, the sinner needs to repent and go through those stages of repentance that we talked about last week, and the forgiver then forgives. And we, we talked about last week that one of the biggest challenges or one of the leading causes for the disillusion or disintegration of relationships really is a lack of repentance and forgiveness. And the reason why it's hard to forgive, and it's hard for people to actually get to that reconciliation point many times is because repentance is absent. Repentance is a big issue when it comes to reconciling our relationships and being able to rebuild trust and, and mend what was broken in the event that sin takes place in a relationship. It has a huge effect on our personal relationships, but not just in our personal relationships. Repentance also has a huge effect on our relationship with God. It's the main impact on our relationship with God. So today for part two... I want to address why repentance is such a big deal in our faith. And note that today is going to be a hard one. It's going to be a tough journey together today because it's going to be a call to repentance. The Holy Spirit's job, the Lord tells us, is to convict the world of sin. When the truth is presented, conviction comes. And today, you're going to be convicted. Your sin is going to be exposed by the Holy Spirit, not to shame you, but to save you. And Paul said to the church of Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he said, I'm obviously not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. And I want to echo that statement here today. See, my goal today isn't to make friends. It's not to make this church more popular, more comfortable. It's not to fill the, the seats with people or to wow audiences today. No, my goal is to honor God. 
to see people take their faith seriously, to surrender their lives to God and begin walking in the freedom that Jesus won for them on the cross. And today, there, there are going to be three responses to the message today, I believe. There'll be three responses. One, there will be repentance. People will respond. They'll receive the word and they'll respond. The second is there'll be indifference. It's going to go in one ear and out the other. It's going to make no difference in your lives. This will just be another Sunday that you can check off the list. And the third, there's going to be indignance. You're going to get angry. Your feathers are going to get ruffled. You're going to feel offended, and you are going to become upset. This is the kind of message that people say, well, I'm never going back to that church again. It happens. There are three, three responses today. See, if you're indignant with me after today, you're really not angry at me. No, you're angry at God. And you're making yourself an enemy with God. If you're indifferent, you're not numb to me, but you're numb to God. And that's scary. But if you are repentant, when you leave here today, you're going to leave right with God. My prayer is today that each and every one of us would walk out these doors in an attitude of repentance. Repentance is something that we read about all through the Scripture, Old and New Testament. It's a theme that connects them both together. Here, David in Psalm 51, he's talking about repentance. We fast forward into the New Testament on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the church is unleashed into the world. Peter stands in all boldness and declares a message of repentance. John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, the, uh, paving the way for Jesus to come onto the stage and begin his ministry, preaches a message of repentance. And Jesus, all throughout his ministry, preaches a message of repentance. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, we can see the emphasis for the believer, for the follower of Jesus Christ, the believer in God, is largely placed on repentance, which means we turn away from sinful living, from living a life that is contrary to the will and word of God, and turn to God through Christ in faith to live a life that's worthy of the calling and honor of God. In one such New Testament teaching, Jesus is uh, with his disciples and people that are following him through his ministry. He hears some news. Uh, Twitter just blows up in the time of Christ and, and finds out that all these Gentiles were killed. I mean, it's what everybody was talking about. And the word gets back to, to Jesus. I don't know what kind of Twitter they had back then. Maybe it was uh, carrier pigeons and, and everyone would do their status update versus pigeons or turtles or something. I don't know. But, but this was the news going around that the governor of Rome in that day, uh, the, uh, the living there in the land of Israel, his name was Pilate. He had slaughtered a bunch of Gentiles. These were non-Jews. And Jesus turns to his disciples and the people following him and asks a question. He asks, were the Gentiles that were killed bigger sinners than the other ones left alive? Were the ones that were judged, were the ones that were killed, that were slaughtered, greater sinners than the ones left alive? And I could see this conversation happening and him letting his disciples stew on that question for just a moment. And then he answers his own question in Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Here's what he says. He says, not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. Think about who he was speaking to. It was disciples. It was his followers, the people that were with him. And what he's saying, in other words, is that destruction doesn't come because of the amount of sin in your life, 
No, destruction comes because there is sin in your life. One sin is enough to separate you from God. Because of the presence of sin at all is why you are judged. And here Jesus is making a parallel in the spiritual realm to the fate of the Gentiles, to eternal destruction or damnation in hell. One and the same. He's saying hell is a reality for those who die in their sins, those who are unforgiven. And the crowds, we think about the group with Jesus, the crowds may have been affiliated with Jesus. The disciples may have been affiliated with Jesus. May even, they believe deep down that they love Jesus with their whole heart. But here Jesus is saying that it doesn't matter how you feel, it doesn't matter who you're affiliated with, unless you repent of your sins, you will not be found worthy to enter into the kingdom of God. Because only those who truly love me, who love me with all of their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength, those are the ones who will repent. And Jesus has a very famous commandment. He says, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. And here he's saying that we must repent. And if we love God, truly love the Lord, then we're going to be people of repentance. And this is why repentance is such a big deal and is still a big deal today, even in the culture we live in, because repentance is a salvation issue. Without repentance, there can be no salvation. I'm going to say that again. Without repentance, there can be no salvation. Paul, speaking to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, this is what he says. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong, that is present tense, that, it, that means that they are currently unrepentant of their sin, He's saying those that do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means they're not getting in. Peter's not letting them through the gate. It's not happening. He says, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter who you're affiliated with or how much you like someone. If you are presently unrepentant, you are not getting in. And then look at what he says, verse 11. He says, some of you, he's talking to the church, says some of you were once just like that. What does that mean? Well, that means at some point there was a change. Something happened. There was a change from the way they used to live to the way they now live. And what happened? Well, they repented. They repented. He goes on. He says, you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When they repented of their sins and turned to God, God saved them, broke the chains of their sin, and they began to walk a new life. See, when true faith happened in these early believers, they were not the same as what they once were. They were different because they were covered by the love and grace of God and filled with this Holy Spirit. The blood of Christ freed them from the power of their sinful ways. Verse 12, Paul goes on, he says, You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. 
See, Paul doesn't say to the Corinthians that you committed these things once and so now you're, you're doomed to never get into he heaven. You're going to hell because you committed these sins. No, he's saying those who are presently engaged in these behaviors, those who are not repentant of their sins and continue to live according to their fleshly desires, they continue to live with their wicked attitudes whose life is contrary to the will and word of God, those are the ones who are not making it in. It doesn't matter how great God's grace is, how amazing his mercy is. Where there is no repentance, there is no salvation. These are the ones who exploit God's grace to satisfy their sinful nature. Oh, I can do anything. God's a God of love. He's a God of grace. It doesn't matter what I do. It's not true. Romans chapter 6, 14 and 16, Paul tells the church of Rome, he says, sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. That is a big heck nah, y'all. Exclamation point. He's like, no, you can't keep on sinning. See, Jesus and sin are on opposite sides of the spectrum. You can't be pursuing Christ and pursuing sin at the same time. It doesn't work that way. And Paul is saying here to the church of Rome, he says, God's grace is not an excuse for you to live however you want. It's not an excuse. You can't live like the devil and expect to reign with God in eternity. It doesn't work that way. Verse 16, it says, don't you realize that you become slave to whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Jesus said, if you obey me, keep my commandments. This is exactly what Paul is communicating here. You become slave to whatever you choose to obey. And Jesus' will is that we would be enslaved to him, that we'd be enslaved to Christ. And like Paul said to the Corinthians, we should not be enslaved to anything that isn't our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we are in Christ, we are children of God, we are followers of Jesus, then we have willingly become the servant of the Lord to do as he wills, as he commands. We give up our rights, our identity to follow him. Paul is telling the church of Rome, he's saying if your salvation is real, then you won't desire to be a slave to what damned you before. You won't desire the things of the world, but you will desire the things of Christ to know him more deeply and to honor him more with everything you are. You might be tempted with the things of the world, but ultimately you will choose to live for Christ. You'll be a new creation. And ultimately you will desire to obey the Lord and work to put your sin to death. Being a slave to Christ means I'm not walking after my sinful ways, my lusts, and my desires. The ways that brought me judgment, but walking in repentance that leads me to righteousness. And in our day and age, it's so common that, that we hear these uh, arguments and these reasonings for, for why we live outside of the will of God. We say, you know, if I choose to ignore God and his word and live according to my selfish desires, if I choose to ignore the parts of the Bible that make me uncomfortable and just live according to the parts I'm comfortable with, or if I twist the words in order to justify my decisions and desires, the true state of my salvation is revealed. My salvation is a farce. It's false. The child of God doesn't try to manipulate the word to verify our decisions and how we want to live. When we try to 
overlook or bypass or manipulate or find the loopholes into God's word, it shows that really I want something from God and I'm not willing to give God what he truly desires. There's a story of a man in Acts chapter 8 named Simon the sorcerer. Simon was the big guy in town. He was powerful. He was full of demonic powers. And people would come see him for wisdom, for, for healing, and for you know, the different things that they would need in that day to place curses on other people. And the whole town would come to Simon because he was the, the dude to see. And Philip, the disciple of Christ, the apostle of Christ, comes to town and begins evangelizing the town in Samaria. He begins winning all these people to Christ. Peter and the other disciples join him. And the Holy Spirit starts doing all these incredible miracles through, through the disciples, and so Simon realizes, hey, that power is greater than what I have. That must be the real deal. And so Simon gives his life to Christ. He prays the prayer. He gets baptized and becomes a disciple. And then one day, Simon comes up to Peter, and he asks Peter, how much? And Peter's like, how much what? And Simon's like, how much for that power that you have? How much can I pay you in order to buy the power of the Holy Spirit? And Peter has a strong reply to Simon in Acts chapter 8, verses 20 and 23. Peter replies, he says, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Simon the sorcerer, he prayed the prayer. He was baptized. He went to the church meetings. He sang the songs. But he did it out of a motivation of greed and jealousy. And some of us who've grown up in church our whole lives, we have prayed the prayers, we've been baptized, we've been to the church meetings, we've sang the songs, maybe even cried a time or two. Because what we actually want is a first-class ticket to heaven, and we think those things will be valuable enough to purchase it. But just like Peter said to Simon, may your works be destroyed for thinking the grace of God can be bought. You will have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. God doesn't want the religion. He doesn't want the outward acts of worship. What he wants is found in our text in Psalm chapter 51, verse 17. David says this. He says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. That's what God wants. It's not by works that we're saved. Paul tells the Church of Ephesus in Ephesians 2, it's by grace that we're saved through our faith. You cannot earn the salvation of God. God's grace is freely given, but it's given as a gift to the repentant, to the ones who've repented of their sins and turned to Christ in faith so they can continue to pursue righteousness without fear of judgment. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, Mark 16, 16, he gives a word to his disciples, and he says this. He says, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. And many people use this verse to kind of, to kind of promote this idea that you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. And see, there are, depending on the background, the church background that you have, whether you grew up Catholic or, or what have you, just depending on 
where your background is will alter, ultimately determine the view you have on baptism. And I would say today in our church culture and many of the people that I come across and, and speak with, baptism in our day is totally misunderstood by a lot of people, denominations, etc. Because it's become more of a family tradition than a conscious personal decision. In the time of Christ, uh, when you are baptized, what you're saying is that I'm giving up my old ways and I'm committing and surrendering my life to a new way, to something new, whether it be a new philosophy, living towards a new creed, uh, following a new teacher and being a disciple. This was what baptism was. It was a conscious, personal decision. And Jesus here in Mark 16, he isn't saying you have to be baptized to be saved, to go to heaven. Notice what he says here after he mentions baptism. He says, if you refuse to what? Believe. If you refuse to believe, you will be condemned. Not if you fail to be baptized. You'll be condemned. See, the emphasis here by Christ is on the belief of a person, not the religious works of a person. Baptism symbolizes our repentance. It's the symbol of what the ancient culture uh, placed upon the importance of making that decision to turn from your old life and walk into a new life. And baptism for Christians today shows that our old lives are gone. We have made a conscious decision to dedicate our new lives to following the teachings and example of Christ. Paul kind of speaks on this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says this means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. Behold, the new life has begun. This is what baptism symbolizes, is that the old is past, and we're walking towards the new. And Jesus is saying that it's not baptism that saves you, it's the faith that saves you. And many of us, we've grown up in church, we've done all these religious things, we've been baptized, and we point to these things as evidence for our faith. But just like Simon the sorcerer, you can get baptized and yet still be unrepentant. Simon was dominated by his old identity as a sorcerer, and he was enslaved to it because that is what he really worshipped, and that is what he really believed in. Water makes no effect. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that water just washes away dirt. It has no effect. It cannot cleanse the soul. It is only helpful or effective if it's as a response to turning and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Baptism is meaningless without the faith. There's no point in being baptized if you don't believe. Because only belief is going to affect the way you live. If you truly believe in something, if it's more than just talk and you truly believe in something, it's going to affect the way you live your life. It's going to affect the way you live. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you will repent. Salvation of the soul is predicated on belief, not baptism. Baptism is the symbol of what should have already taken place in your heart and life. You see, the key factor in recognizing a person has genuine faith in Jesus, that Jesus is the Lord of their lives, that their soul has been saved and they are on their way to heaven, is that their life is marked by repentance. Repentance is one of the main evidences for true faith and belief. The repentance issue, in my mind, is the most important issue of a follower of Jesus Christ because ultimately it is a worship issue. And the question of who or what you will worship. Will you worship God or will you worship your sin? In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, in the Ten Commandments, 
Jesus, or God, tells the nation of Israel, says, you must not have any other gods before me. We just sang a song called How He Loves, and the first line of the first verse says, He is jealous for me. Our God is a jealous God. He is jealous because he's sick and tired of watching our hearts wander after other gods. He wants no other gods to be before him. God wants to be your one and only. And Jesus even breaks this down further in the New Testament in Luke 14, 26 through 27. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Paul tells the church of Corinth that people have made their God into their stomach. We as humans, we tend to make little gods, false gods, out of every and anything we can. Sometimes even the people in our own family or the people in our lives, when we let the needs and desires of others dictate our needs and wants and desires, they become gods in our life, even to the point that we will willingly forsake what we know God wants for us and from us for the sake of hurting or losing someone we care about. You see this sometimes in, in marriage relationships where parents will place the importance of their children up over their own relationship to the point that the kids become God. Kids get to determine everything, and they don't invest anything in their marriage because everything is invested into the kids. And then the one day the kids grow up and leave the home, there's nothing left to keep the marriage together, and it dissolves. Because we ultimately worship our children, and instead of putting the emphasis on the marriage, the one relationship that is supposed to be for oneness and, and, and supposed to be eternally com, uh, covenanted together before God, instead of placing the importance on the marriage, we place it on the relationship with our kids, showing that we believe our wisdom and our ideas and our thoughts trump even God's and what God desires for the family. We make God's out of all sorts of things, out of sports teams, out of recreation. We invest in so many things that won't last for eternity, that won't last more than the things of God, like simply getting alone to pray and meditate on his word every day seems too much of an inconvenience or like work compared to the things we really want to do. We'll miss getting together with the church on Sunday for any reason under the sun, but all life comes to an end when our favorite sports team is on. My whole year is centered around these, these vacations I want to take or going up north. All my finances are previously budgeted to make and ensure that my life stays as comfortable as possible, not how I can expand the kingdom of God. And we wonder why more people aren't getting saved and why our nation is slipping further and further away from God's will. See, God does not want to compete for our affection. He wants to be the one and only God. And Jesus said if we want to belong to him, our love for him needs to be so great that by comparison we hate everything and everyone else. This is the same kind of love and faith Abraham had. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son on an altar. Abraham literally goes, gets his son and some wood and a knife and marches his son up Mount Moriah. And just before he kills his own son, God intervenes and sends another sacrifice. 
What we learn from that story is that God won't actually ask you to do something so evil as sacrifice your own child, but he does ask you to be willing to. To love him enough to be willing to give up what you love most, what you desire most for his sake. That you would hate everything else by comparison to how much you love God. Romans 12.1, Paul says this. He says, and dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. See, God wants nothing to get in the way of our relationship, our relationship with him, not your greed, not your plans for the future, not your relationships, not your selfishness, your habits, your vices, your fears, nothing. Nothing gets in the way. Everything we are is a living sacrifice. And this is why repentance is the key to living the Christian life, especially for receiving the salvation of our souls, because repentance is what removes everything else that's in the way. It removes it. Paul here in Romans 12 says, Our bodies should be the living sacrifices, what we see, what we say, what we do, where we go. Even what we eat and what we drink, everything we do should be a sacrifice to the Lord. And then in verse 2, he encourages us not to be conformed to the culture, but transformed by the word of God. God wants his truth, his will, that God's truth and his will should be more important to us than how we feel or what the world tells us is okay. That his truth far exceeds the value and importance we place on our relationships because the truth is what opens our eyes. The truth is what sets us free. John 8, 31, 32, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples. If you remain faithful to my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth of God is what uncuffs you to the world and sets you free to run in the kingdom of God. The truth is what leads you to make your life a living sacrifice, living as an act of worship, bringing God more and more glory. And in our church culture today, in our Christian society for years now, has been drifting further and further away from the truth, from preaching and calling people to repentance and focusing more and more on being comfortable and building feel-good relationships. So much so that even this past week, a prominent figure in the mainstream church in an interview stated that she had a willingness to overlook what the Bible says for the sake of the emotions and feelings of people that she had relationships with. See, building relationships are a good thing. We try to facilitate that here at Vertical Life Church with our life groups, relationships that encourage your faith, that are there to help weather the storms of life and continue to push you to live on mission. Relationships can be a very good thing. But even today, this culture that we find ourselves in is encouraging the church to love people, the people in our lives, more than we believe in and love God to the point that we'll disregard his word or overlook things that his word says to keep from hurting feelings or making situations awkward and uncomfortable. So the problem is, is you cannot be loving God and dishonoring him at the same time. You cannot say, God, I, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, but then not give him your heart and obey what he says in his word. Today in the American church, we tend to overlook and justify so many sins that were taboo just a few years ago for the sake of hurt feelings. 
But God's will for us is not to excuse sin. It's not to make people feel good so that they will like God or like us. No, it's to reveal sin, to call people to repentance so that they can be delivered from Satan's power, so that they can be set free from the chains that have been holding them back, so their souls can be saved and live a life that's transformed for the honor and glory of God. That is what we are here for. And one of the biggest areas where the church has slipped into being more conformed to the world than transformed by the word is in the realm of our relationships. Right now, there's what they call a love wins movement in our culture that's justifying every type of relationship under the sun that is contrary to what the word of God teaches us. And many people, Christians, have a difficulty holding the line of truth and being gracious at the same time. They feel like, well, I can't say what's true because that'll hurt their feelings, and so I'm just going to show them grace and hope they just get it one day. And they end up ignoring the sin in order to keep people from being uncomfortable, but that is neither loving nor what God intended for the church. A perfect example of what God's will is for us is found in Ezra chapter 10. The nation of Israel had been scattered around the world due to the Babylonians coming in and conquering the nation. Finally, they got to the time period where Nehemiah, the prophet, was going to uh, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. The Israelites were coming back home. And while they were coming home, they started being convicted of their sin. And so they went to Ezra the priest, and they told Ezra, hey, we've done something bad. We married women from these foreign lands. And this was dangerous because God had commanded them not to marry people from foreign lands because the people would influence their hearts away from serving the one true God into idolatry and into sin, violating the very first commandment of God. By the time we get to Ezra chapter 10, the people are returning to Israel. They've made this confession, and they asked Ezra, what should we do? And Ezra responds to them in Ezra 10, 10 through 12. And it says, here's what Ezra the priest stood and said to them. He said, you have committed a terrible sin by marrying pagan women. You've increased Israel's guilt. So now confess your sin to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Do what he demands. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from these pagan women. And the whole assembly raised their voices and answered, yes, you are right. We must do as you say. God's will for us as his people is to call people to repentance and for the people to respond in repentance. Did Ezra brush their sin under the rug? No. Did he rebuke them in such a way as to not offend them? No, he called it like it was. Ezra didn't care about hurting feelings. He cared about honoring God. He called out their sin and demanded they repent because there is more at stake than feelings. There is eternity. There's more at stake than what's perceived on the outside of the situation. Salvation is at stake. Their heart is at stake. And as Christians, we are called to preach the word in love, not to be condemning, but to be truthful. We have a message of reconciliation, not condemnation. Our goal is not to damage, but to lead people to the saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'm not advocating picketing funerals or weddings. I'm not advocating standing on the street with the signs that say, God hates you. No, put your faith in him. We need to be preaching the word in love, but at the same time, the truth cannot be filled with so many flowery words that it gets lost in all the fields. Truth demands sin to be called out and for the people to respond 
and repentance. In the New Testament, there are only two commands given to the Gentile believers in the church in Acts 15. It was to don't eat meat, all, offered to idols, and abstain from sexual immorality. That's all sexual activity outside the context of marriage. And of all the laws of Moses, these were the two they believed God had instructed them to command the Gentile believers to obey. One of the big lies in our culture today is that consent and Love is all that's required to be involved in a sexual relationship, especially as it pertains to marriage. It doesn't matter who you're involved with or what genders are involved in the equation. As long as it's a loving, committed relationship, then it's okay. And many Christians and churches today have joined in the world and said, yeah, you know what? That's okay. But here we can plainly see in the the word of God that not all relationships, not even all marriages are accepted by God. Not all marriages are equal in the sight of God. And these were heterosexual marriages, and yet God did not accept them. Why? It's because it violated his word and his will. It's because the Israelites had a command, do not marry foreign women. And because their current cultural context violated God's word, their relationships were not acceptable. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His will and nature does not change. He's not going to change his word just because our culture thinks something new. Culture may change, but God does not change or cast a shifting shadow. He is the rock. He is steadfast. And even in our church today, our culture today, we understand what God's will for marriage is when, as the genders are involved. But we also have a command from God in 2 Corinthians 6.14. It says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what hath communion hath light with darkness? Do not be unequally yoked. This is a reference to farming. Oxen were yoked together so that they could not separate and work against each other as they plowed the field. They were bound together so they would be working together in the mission. And this is the same way a marriage Married couple is supposed to be in marriage. God brings the man and woman together, binds their souls together with his spirit for a common purpose. And here Paul is instructing us under the inspiration of God not to marry someone who is not a believer. For the very same reason God commanded Israel not to marry foreign women. They will work against you. They will bring hardship. They will lead your heart away from worshiping God. Don't do it. And some of you here today feel the pain. That very truth. Married someone who wasn't a believer. You know the truth of this verse. God means what he says. It's not for your benefit. It's not for your good. Don't do it. God doesn't accept all relationships or all marriages, even if it's one man and one woman. That's not all that counts. Gender for the couple is not all that counts. God only honors marriages between one man and one woman if they're both believers, if they're equally yoked. This is why Paul instructs the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if you're married to an unbeliever and they want to leave, just let them go. Let them go. And it'll be as if it never took place. Why? Because it didn't count before God anyways. God did not honor that relationship. It violated the word of God. See, just because it's called marriage by men does not make it holy before God. And ultimately, if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave as hard as divorce is, do not stop them, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, so that through repentance you can give your life back to God. You can put your priorities back 
under Christ and seek out a different relationship that honors the word and will of God. Many Christians back then, as they do today, disregard the word in many areas of their life. They don't obey the Lord's instructions and end up in relationships that don't honor God, but they open the door to the enemy to bring all sorts of pain and struggle, as well as spiritual bondage and emotional baggage. Because their sin is what brought on the hardship. And because of their sin, they pass that same baggage and struggle onto their children because they raised their children in that mess. And I think people do this, especially young people in our day, because the God that they really worship is the God of selfish desire, the God of their need to be loved, the God of their fear of being lonely. And they would rather walk away from God's altar than kneel at the altar of false gods and be patient and give their lives to the Lord as a living sacrifice. In Ezra chapter 10, we see a truly repentant person puts God above all, even the relationships they have in their life. And I cannot imagine for the life of me divorcing my wife and sending her and my kids back home to live with her parents, never to see them again. That would be the most gut-wrenching, painful thing I could ever imagine doing. But yet, a repentant person who loves God above all realizes that that is a repercussion of their sin. Their sin caused the conflict. Their sin caused the pain. Their sin is what created the problem. Psalm 51, 3 through 4, David says this. He says, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you, and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. Your judgment against me is just a repentant person doesn't blame shift, doesn't excuse, doesn't justify. They take responsibility for their actions and recognize their sin is the catalyst or cause for the problems in their life. They agree with God that they are the one to blame. And they choose to go another direction, to submit their life to Christ. They want to set things right. They want to get right with God. They want others to be able to heal and move on. They themselves want to be free from this spiritual bondage that's caused so many problems in their life, then they choose to go through the pain of repentance, no matter the cost. And this is where we fail in our day, in our lives, with the things we struggle with, the addictions we have, the, the, the vices that we have. We size up the pain of what it's going to cost to repent. And in many different situations and circumstances, especially when we've brought this pain on ourselves and we look at the situation and we say, you know what, that's too much pain. That's too hard. That's too difficult. And so we look for ways to get around our sin, to justify or excuse or hide our sin instead of repent of our sin. And the scary thing is, is that Jesus says, a child of God is one who repents. We may want to hide. We may want to avoid conflict. We may want to avoid the pain, the shame, the embarrassment. But ultimately, a child of God knows that what God wants is greater than what we want because our lives are given to him as a living sacrifice. We pick up our cross daily and surrender it to him. A child of God repents, and a fake Christian just feels bad about their sin and continues to do nothing about it. That's the difference between what Paul calls worldly sorrow and godly repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. If all you do is feel bad about your sin, 
but there is no repentance, then you can be perfectly religious and still be on your way to hell. If repentance opens the door for salvation, and repentance is the sign of a true follower of Jesus, if repentance is the key to healing broken relationships, then feeling bad is not enough. We need to take action on our sin. We need to turn away from our sin, overcome our sin through repentance by turning to Jesus Christ in faith and say, I'm going to trust your wisdom over mine. I'm going to follow your ways, not mine. So we're not stuck in worldly sorrow, feeling bad about ourselves, moving from one broken relationship to another as we travel the road to hell. No, we need to recognize our sin, take responsibility for our sin, and repent of our sin. And our prayer today and every day as a child of God should be the same as David's in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 10. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. That is our prayer each and every day as a child of God. As we discuss the Psalms and the healing power of worship, as we seek the healing for our souls and the restoration of our joy that we're supposed to be living and experiencing through having a relationship with Jesus Christ, Christ said, I've come to give you a life and a life overflowing. If we want to experience that joy, then today we recognize that it begins with giving God our hearts, giving our entire selves to him as a living sacrifice, our entire being as an act of praise, that the true worship of our God begins with repentance. Let's bow our heads today in this place, and let's go into an attitude of prayer. There's someone here today carrying a heavy burden, either because you've sinned against someone and have been too afraid to confess, or you've been sinned against and you've been too angry to forgive. Today, you need to give your life to God as a living sacrifice. You need to confess your sin to God and take action to make it right. There's someone here today that's been filling their mind with filth and excusing uh, what they watch is just entertainment, and you've been indulging in sinful lust. Today, you need to give your life to God as a living sacrifice. Confess your sin to God and take action to make it right. Today, there's someone who's involved in an unholy relationship. Today, you need to give your life to God as a living sacrifice. You need to confess your sin to God and take action to make it right. Today, there's someone who's yet to be saved. You've yet, for the very first time, to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to give God your life through calling out to the Lord and making him your Lord and Savior. Today, you need to confess your sins to God. When we stand together to sing, you need to pray and call out to God and say, forgive me of my sin. Save my soul. Jesus is now my Lord and Savior. You need to dedicate your life from this day forward to following the will and word of God. Church, today, whatever the Holy Spirit is bringing to your attention, I know the Spirit is speaking. We all have so many different areas in our lives that we need to submit before the Lord, that we need to confess and repent. Today, I encourage you 
don't be too afraid to approach his throne. When we approach the throne of God, there is grace and mercy. He wants you to repent so that he can wash that sin away. He can restore what is broken, that he can show you his unfailing and unending love. Today, we need to give our hearts to the Lord. That's what he wants more than anything. For there to be no gods before him. For you to love him more than any other. And be willing to prove it by the way you live. Because a heart offered to God is a life he can use to change the world. You need to commit today to start making changes to get your life back into the center of his will. And as sure as we have this promise from the word, he will not reject a broken and repentant heart. The healing of our souls we desperately need will come, but it begins with repentance. Father in heaven, we just commit this time to you. God, it's never comfortable, it's never fun to be faced with the sinful nature of our own life. And I can sense there's tension in the room right now, God. But on the other side of that tension is victory, is forgiveness, is mercy, is grace, is love, is eternal life, God. And so we just commit this time to you. And I just pray, God, that we would step past the tension and through repentance, we would give our lives to you and give you honor and glory with all that we are. I pray for each and every one here. I pray for the one who's yet to place their faith and trust in Christ. God, that you would lead them into saving faith today. That as we stand and sing, that, that they would call out to you in prayer. God, for those that are wrestling with sin and things that they've been struggling with. God, when we stand and sing, that they would flood down the front of the stage and make this an old-fashioned altar, God. And they would literally lay their lives down in repentance for you. God, that we would see a move of God today in this place as your people finally humble themselves and pray, turn from their sinful ways, and begin to seek your face. This we ask in Jesus' name.